0: Welcome to Before You Go. I'm Bryant Monte.
1: And I'm Nicole Franklin. And today on KBLA Talk 1580, we meet someone who, for decades, had unique insight into the world of classical music by a well known African American composer. Juanita Smith married Hale Smith in 1948. Hale Smith composed operas, performed with orchestras. He and Juanita traveled the world. And when Mr. Smith passed away, Juanita took on the role of music publisher, an Mm -hmm. all-too-important responsibility many in the business neglect to take on. Uh, Juanita, I'm so happy
2: you're joining us today. How are you? Well, I thank you. I thank you for asking me. I keep saying What, what I have, I hope, is important to say, but then again, you never know. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Juanita, when were you born? I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, back in 1927.
1: Yeah. (laughs) 7 Eleven 27 Nice. Cleveland history in the house, y'all. Yay. (laughs) So before we get into the typical day of a publisher, let's go back to the early days of Ohio. Uh, Juanita, how did you meet? How did you and Hale Smith meet?
2: Hale and I were schoolmates, even though we went to different schools, but at the same time, we lived within a block of each other. And he was always a grade and a half ahead of me until he failed a couple of times and he was a grade and a half behind me. Mm. And so, so when I graduated from high school, he didn't. He was drafted out of high school into the army. And that's how well, that's how we met, we met as, met as schoolmates. And then uh, he was always interested in music and that was his the source of all of his problems because in in by him being interested in music, he was disinterested in everything else. So he was constantly in trouble in school, but he finally made it through eventually. So that's how we met. We met in Cleveland, and that's where we got married, in Cleveland.
0: Was it love at first sight?
2: Not necessarily.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> we were, we always ran around in groups. He was never single, you know, it was always several of us at one time so you know how that is that kind of mentality but it was interesting because he was one of the more interesting students really and because he had something he had a passion for something he was always a little out of step with the rest of us but still I mean he managed to do in spite of all the handicaps that were handed him so that was the beginning of our relationship. Mm -hmm. But he was
1: interested in anything other than school, right?
2: (laughs) That's right, anything other than school. And he was a reader. He could read, he just read constantly. I don't care where we went, he had a bag of books with him, even to the drive-in movie theater. So that's, that's how passionate he was about reading. But it served him well as he got older, because he could talk on just about any subject with knowledge, because he had just taken so much in as a young person. But composing was his love, and that's what he did all his life.
1: When did he start composing? Was it while he was in high school? Well, he was, uh, when he went into
2: the Army, he went into the Army band, and there he met a lot of Earl Hines' former band members, and one in particular, William Randall, who was an outstanding reed player and a composition major, took charge of him and gave him instruction as to how to compose and that's where he started because he used to write a lot of tunes he said but he didn't know how to connect them and so this particular individual really became his main instructor in the army
0: and and in the army was that his focus or was he doing
2: that was the last place he wanted to be (laughs) (laughs) that was an outlet for him because actually during the uh the beginning of the war he and a group of his friends, who had been in a little band, had decided to go down and join the Navy. They were too young and without parental um, uh, consent, and so they had to be. They were later drafted, and so when they were drafted into the into the army, they were able to get into the army uh, into the able to get into the band, mm-hmm. and that was a saving grace for them because they didn't want to be in the army to begin with. So they managed to get in the van and so they traveled in the van during the war. He never went overseas. Okay.
1: That army band was rocking, I guess. So he came out of the army
2: and went to went back to Cleveland. I told you he was drafted out of high school because he was overage. he failed so many times, he didn't come out when he was supposed to. So he came back as a civilian and took a series of exams offered by the Board of Education to veterans and passed it and went into his sophomore year in college. And that's where he started his formal studies, his uh, music studies at the Cleveland Institute of Music, but he did his academic things at Western Reserve, which is now Case Western Reserve. And that's where he got his degree and he got his master's from the Cleveland Institute of Music. So that, that was his foundation. And that was the beginning of what he later went later did in life he wanted to become a composer and that started him on his on the road he wasn't there yet but he, that was the beginning the, as a result of him coming to new york but at that time new york wasn't uh on the horizon uh, the head of the school burl Rubenstein, had mentioned to him before he graduated that he, he would be glad to give him a job teaching at the Institute, but he knew that wasn't what he wanted. He said, mm-hmm. you need to go to New York. And that's what he eventually did. He came to New York. And you took that radical step with him. In the summer of 60, Hale and I had taken over Ron Carter's apartment up in Harlem because he'd gone on the road to Miles Davis at that time. Mm-hmm. And that summer, a friend came by and said, listen, I'm going down to the United Nations to get a job. He said, come go with me. Well, he was a translator. So we both went down there at that time to sign up. But for some reason or other, he didn't get it. But the woman asked me to take the exam, which I did. And she, when I passed it, she said, how much time would you need to come back? And I said, at least two weeks, because I'm working in the school system. So she held my job for me. And I came back in September 19, 1960 and took a job at the UN. At the United Nations. Uh,
1: <laughs> this is a charmed um, entrance into New York. Uh, more with Juanita Smith when we return.
0: This And we're back with Juanita Smith, and I just wanted to ask you about the United Nations and what that experience must have been like, especially during that time of, uh, you said it was 1960?
2: Yeah, it was 1960, and that was the beginning of the Belgian um, uh, Revolution, uh, actually civil war in the Congo. That's when they broke loose in Belgium. Mm-hmm. So the United Nations is already undergoing a, a financial problem at that point. Because they were, they had located a lot of people in the Belgium, in the Congo uh, co- country, mm-hmm. and they had to pay them for hardship duty stations and all. But then the the country had the civil war and it broke apart and it became Biafra and the Congo until it, it was just one of those weird things that happened just at the time I started. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, in fact, it made it so uncertain that at the time the security guard told me to sit down, I might not have a job, because everything was sort of broke loose. And so uh, that part of the, um, my induction into the United Nation was very scary, because I didn't think, we thought the organization was gonna collapse at that mm. point. That was the first major thing that happened to the United Nations. So many wow. other things happened, but that was very important. And that was also the, uh, the year before Dag Hammershall died on the airplane crash in the Congo. So it was a very uncertain period. But to make a long story short, to work in the UN was a fantastic place. To be involved with all those people from all over the world, to have them in your office, about six or seven different nationalities, and all of them worked in English, whereby (laughs) a lot of the Americans did not, couldn't work in other languages. But you were required by the staff to work in more than one language. So I could always work in French because that was the thing I took from the beginning of high school all the way through college. Nice. So that was one advantage, but just the idea of being in touch with people from other countries just gave you a new insight into your own life. It was remarkable. And I made a lot of friends there. Juanita,
1: what was your role at the UN? What was your position? I, I was I, played, I was
2: a payroll clerk. And believe it or not, when I started, we did not have computers. Oh, no. <laughs> we had hand crank calculators. The United Nations didn't go on computers until about two or three years after. There, In fact, there's no such thing as a computer at that time, at that particular time for that particular uh, payroll. Mm-hmm. They had a, had a special design one because it had to uh, initiate pay, in so many different currencies all over the world. and pay people all over the world. I don't know if you remember the they had key punch girls used to punch the cards. Yeah. Uh, and that was that was before everything was done on the computer. We had the code for the girls to punch the cards for them to feed it into the computer. <laughs> so that's how primitive it was when I first started. At the UN, that's I'm getting
1: that's, a, a hidden figures vibe. <laughs> so, yeah. anyway,
2: that's that was the start of the computer system at the UN, but that was like not after it was after the, 1960.
0: And what is it about the UN that you tell people, uh, how significant and well, the work that they accomplish? Because some might think, well, what no. what do they really get done, you know.
2: Yeah, you'd think that. It's still bureaucratic, just like everything else. But we were in the Secretariat, and of course, we didn't have anything to do with diplomacy. We were running the nuts and bolts of the organization. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was in the Accounts Division, And uh, Accounts Division made up of cashiers and the payroll section. And our payroll section, there were about 12 of us highly visible to everybody in the building because sooner or later everybody came up about their paycheck so (laughs) they recognized anybody who was working in the payroll section but it was an interesting place just just the nature of being with all of these people i do know for a fact that one of the members of the cashiers was a nephew of Imelda marcos and she was the first lady of the philippines yeah so you didn't know who knew who in that building. But then you found a number of people that were on your own economic level as well. Mm -hmm. But it was fascinating. It really was fascinating. Because it threw you in the path of so many different nationalities and so many different customs and so many different foods. We had a feast at Christmas time (laughs) because everybody brought something special from their own country.
1: Yeah, I always enjoyed being treated to lunch at the UN by Juanita. (laughs) Uh, we you to get started. That's right. We went, yeah. Had that, so, it was a buffet, I think.
2: <laughs> yeah, they used to have a nice uh, menu. where had all you could eat <laughs> one day. It usually it was all cafeteria style, unless you wanted a special. You never knew who was there, and I, and I was fortunate enough when I started. Uh, we were on the thirty seventh floor. The thirty eighth floor had the Secretary General and Ralph Bunch. So, that bank of elevators, you could see anybody, we some of Kennedy's men would be there if even be, be Bobby Kennedy himself at that particular elevator bank going up to see the Secretary General. It, like I said it was, it was a, a fun place to work. Whether they got anything done on the other side, I don't know. They so often they didn't, but we, <laughs> right. I said we had the nuts and bolts of our organization.
0: Were you ever surprised, uh, like, doing payroll uh, to say, wow, they get paid that much?
2: <laughs> no, they, listen, they, it was a Who good salary. Who got
0: sal- paid the most? <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was a good salary. We paid everybody from the secretary general down to the janitor and the printers down to the French shop. And it was a nice, it was a comfortable sal- sal- salary. And they got, in mm-hmm. some cases, people got dependency allowances for their parents. Or they got dependency the allowance for the children or they got a, a, an allowance for a language the extra language but and then of course if they're in a duty station they would get for the country mm-hmm. they were working in the currency for there they could get their home country as well as convertible currency which was like francs or english pounds or u.s dollars mm. that's the way it worked mm.
1: so I think in the UN, you had a lot of interesting performances, musical performances as well, that you got to uh, witness. But then of course you're like, you know, married to a composer. <laughs> what was the New York music scene like and, and you and Hale in it?
2: Well, it was fine for Hale. okay. Because he'd made friends with with um, Randy Weston and Melba oh. Liston from the get go. They became very good friends. Oh, so talented. And then we had a friend yeah at the U.N. named Bill Dixon, who was a trumpet player who started a jazz club at the U.N. So they would bring in, acts. they would bring in people like Thelonious Monk. They were bringing a lot of musicians at our lunchtime Mm -hmm. for their performances. And that's where Hale and Bill Dixon got acquainted. And they played together down on Bleecker Street on the weekend at a coffee house. And uh, a lot of interest in the U.N. from other other nationalities up with jazz mm-hmm. so that was an outlet too but Hale was on the scene primarily at that time as an editor mm. he wasn't he was not playing only occasionally would he work with somebody but he was there working as an arranger okay uh, or who was editing and then he did calligraphy also so, oh. so he did scores <laughs> in fact his scores were such that they didn't even great engrave. engrave the music they just photographed his score. In oh. fact, a lot of his formal music uh, to this day is really not engraved. It's just it's his score that they photographed. Okay. So that was his hand. That was what he did. But primarily, he was in composition. And that's all he really wanted to do, aside from the editorial work.
1: Let's talk about um, when he got into publishing. That was with Gigi Grice.
2: Well, Gigi was one of the very uh, outstanding musicians that was here at that time. That was in the late, early 50s, late 60s. Mm -hmm. He and Hale had a gentleman's agreement. He had had a publishing company of his own called Melotone, Mm -hmm. and Hale asked him up front if he would put his music in his company. If he did, could he get it back? Mm -hmm. And it was a handshake. Yes, and that's what he did. So for a year or so, Gigi had Hale's music, all that he wanted him to have in his company and could dispense with it according to Hale's direction. But as soon as Hale set up his own publishing, Gigi gave it back to him. It was all done on a handshake. That was the type of person he was. But he was an outstanding man and a composer and arranger himself. Gee, yeah, and a short, a short Gigi. life,
1: unfortunately.
2: Yes, indeed, and, mm. and really one, one of the nicer people, really. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how you. Sometimes you meet somebody like that, and he's one of them.
1: Oh, <laughs> I, that's what a, a nice uh, reflection on them crossing paths. about Hale Smith as composer, the genre of music that he covered. So we have spirituals, we have jazz, we have classical.
2: Yeah, the thing Hale referred to his classical music as formal. That's his formal oh. music. <laughs> okay. His other music is informal. Okay. And he always separated <laughs> the two because oh. he never knowingly mixed them. But as far as his f- formal music, all of his formal music has been published. Okay. Now there are about four publishers involved, but when the computer came along, it put several of them out of business. Oh,
1: yeah.
2: Some of them dropped altogether, some merged and some new companies formed. So he can honestly say that for every company that he worked as editor, they have music of his.
1: Wow. When it comes
2: to his informal music, which he kept separate, I handle the Spiritals. And of course, the other people that handle the jazz are the ones that do the recording. He does not, we don't publish music. I rent it out. I rent the Spiritals out with, with scores and parts. But as far as publishing, I don't. I, Hale would always fix a lead sheet for somebody and fix mm-hmm. a piano. Company and that's the way that was dispensed. But he purposely held aside the spirituals so I'd have additional income to whatever was being done by the the publishing companies, because I get whatever they sell and rent as well. I get a percentage. So that was an extra income for me. And fortunately, his spiritual arrangements took off. Mm -hmm. The first recording of the forum that he did for orchestra recorded by London Philharmonic and Bill Brown was the soloist. Oh, wow. And from that point on, everybody that was a singer has has done them. And Kathleen uh, actually has more than many of them. Kathleen Battle. (laughs) She's done them constantly. So when she did this series of Underground Railway things, she had Hills things on there as well. Beautiful. No, I was
0: gonna say for those who are like me, novices when it comes to composing and music and you know, kind of take us through what it takes to be a composer as compared to a musician. Um and what did he play to give him such talent like
2: this? You need hell to tell you that really <laughs> uh, He said there are songwriters and there are tune writers to those composers. Oh. you yeah, know, songwriter, you know, songwriter, everybody's not a composer. Because a compose, composition is like writing writing a poem or like writing a letter. So when you have to have the subject matter and everything, everything falls in place. It has a place. A tune is something you write for a few minutes. It's gone. And a composition lasts. On, on it's an ongoing thing, uh. and so many times. They don't separate that. Everybody thinks everybody that writes a tune is a composer. They're not, it's just not done. But like I said, it would take a composer to tell you why.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: <And> I, <laughs> but I can tell you this, as opposed to a number of that I know, Hale never composed at a piano. He ah. was never one of those to go plunk out the keys and everything and write it down. When he got ready to write, he might be walking around the room, looking out the window, and all of a sudden he'll sit down, get all of his tools together, rulers and everything, and start writing just like you and I would start writing a letter. He would have the paper, everything lined up with all the instrumentation, and he would just do line by line just like you and I would write a letter, never touching the piano, never. In fact, the the whole thing of his career, he never practiced. He just, even when he was in school, he never practiced, but he could play piano. And he could play with any group, and he played with any group. He played with Oliver Nelson, he played with Dizzy.
1: Dizzy Gillespie,
2: yeah. He He, he worked with a number of them. So it wasn't the case Mm -hmm. of him not doing it. That just was not his interest at the piano. He was a composer. And anytime people would ask him, what's your instrument? He would pull out his fountain pen. (laughs) that's what he wrote with that was what he put his music down with
0: pen and paper his instrument that was it Anita wanted to ask you, we're going back to composing and what uh, your husband, hell would Mm do. He, he, his instrument was the pen and the paper. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I just wonder, because in anything that you produce, whether it's film, whether it's like in our case, you know, podcast, radio, whatever it is, sometimes you put together something and you you just have that feeling like this is it. This is, Mm -hmm. this is going to be good. (laughs) Uh, How do you, how did he know? That he really nailed it. The, the, whether those moments that the light just came on and and it just it just flowed for him, or how did it work?
2: Hale never turned out anything he wasn't satisfied with. Uh. He refused to rush to do anything. He got a number of commissions, and he said one thing that taught him a lesson. The very first commission he got, he was going to race like mad to finish that piece so he could get the money. And then he said, he got through with the first page. He said, well, you're a fool. You're putting trash down just oh. to get through. He said, So he decided at that point he was going to take his time. He never, never sacrificed his music for the extra money. Never. Mm-hmm. If he wasn't satisfied with something, I don't care how many sheets of paper he had, if he wasn't satisfied, it went in the trash.
1: Okay. And mm-hmm.
2: he started over mm-hmm. again. So I don't know whether he ever knew this was there i actually you can't even you don't know what is popular or what isn't popular for instance there's a tune out there now called i love music that has just been garnering all the characters the rappers and everybody are recording it and that <laughs> tune came out in 1970. that was mm. one of his informal tunes <laughs> informal. I love music. and he, it's caught on every time he looks around somebody wants it he just did it in a movie. Uh, I just told um, Nicole, he just did in a Norwegian movie it's one of the, on the soundtrack. I love music by Alma Javon. So you just never know what's going to catch. Yeah. Even
0: mm-hmm.
2: if you're inspired with something you did, you don't know what, how the reception is going to be. You like to think that people like it. And a lot of people do like his music. He has been very fortunate in that he's been able to get performances where other people couldn't. Mm-hmm. If you're inspired, you really don't care. Sometimes you don't care whether anybody else is or not. You're just satisfied with yourself. Mm-hmm. And, but he, like I said, he does not, he, ne- and he never did turn on something that he was ashamed of because a lot of, of paper is going in the waste paper basket. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think it's a process, I'm sure, before he put the pen down and said, this piece is finished. <laughs>
2: It Um. is. And listen, I'm gonna tell you, his father, when he was um, before we left Cleveland, Hale had a commission I forgot from BMI. Mm. And Hale was a printer by trade. That's the family printing business. And Hale was a typesetter and line of type operator. And Hale's father said, When are you gonna start writing your piece? And Hale said, It's all up here, pointed to his head. I always (laughs) laughed at that. He said it's all up here. He walked around in that shop for over a week before he started to write. Uh, Yeah, And that's the way he had it all up there. And he said, when he got ready to write, it all came down on paper. But that was his method. And frankly, I don't know how I did it. Be frankly, but that, that's the way it worked.
1: <laughs> well, Juanita, you mentioned Cleveland. It seems like Cleveland spit out a lot of great oh. artists. <laughs> we got Ruby <laughs> D. We got Dorothy Dandridge.
2: I know Dandridge, and of course, Hale knew Ruby. Ruby D. That was funny because he, the uh, Freeport Arts Company, Freeport Arts uh, group, brought uh, she and Ozzy Davis out to one of their programs, and. <laughs> and Hale was talking about Ruby. That D wasn't her maiden name, I can't think of her maiden name. But anyhow, uh, he said he knew her from Cleveland. And I said, oh, Dad, yeah, well. And the funny thing, uh, Hale had picked them up, I think they were in Mount Vernon, wherever they lived, he brought them down to the Freeport High School. And they stopped at the house, we had some people in there to meet them and the first person she saw was my father. She said, Mr. Hancock, what are you doing here? She didn't realize that he was related to us. But oh. that's how we knew that he knew Ruby D <laughs> <So, laughs> because she identified him herself. But anyhow, uh, there were a number of people out of Cleveland, uh, a, a number of musicians. Allie
1: Berry. Well, not a musician, yeah. but yeah, she plays. I, you know, I, <laughs> <the know.
2: dandridge. laughs> I didn't know the Dandridge's. There were the Dandridge sisters out of Cleveland, mm. too.
0: And there yeah. was somebody
2: else that we you all wouldn't know, a name named Cow Cow Davenport, who there was a blues man uh-huh. who did cow uh, cow blues out of Cleveland. In fact, there was a cow cow boogie that was done, I think, by uh, Benny Carter. But there was also someone years ago who had been in the movies named Carmen Newsom, mm-hmm. and he was a real cowboy. His oh. grandfather had a ranch and he he was actually a cowboy, but he starred in the movies. He was a singer and a dancer, a very handsome man, played uh, I think in the, the late or early thirties in films. Nice. He lived in Cleveland okay. and he and Hale got together once. He, like I said, he was a singer and a dancer and they got together once. They never did work together, but they did get together one time. Mm-hmm. But he was one of those pioneers in the film. His name wow. was Carmen Newsom.
1: Nice to know this history. The skills of a lot of musicians were honed in Cleveland. Why yeah, was that? I mean, it must have been the teachers and the performers who were there.
2: Well, I, don't, it, it, I think it has to do with certain drives of certain people. I, I really don't, can't answer that. But we did have good uh, schooling, especially at the Institute of Music and uh, yes. uh, the Cleveland Orchestra, which is highly yeah. successful. Mm-hmm and there was a, a number of small social places that people could go to take lessons and all. So, I mean, a number of musicians went out with the major bands. Most of them went with Count Vasey from time to time. Wow. A couple went, uh, well, Howard went with uh, Lionel Hampton.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, there was another, Rudy Mason, who was a guitar player, he went with Hampton. So they they just happened to be in the right place at the right time. <laughs> just like I'm Detroit right. had a lot of jazz musicians and sort oh. of Philadelphia, sort of Pittsburgh. So yeah. I don't know, always a, a group of people that are together that that, that hang together, <laughs> make up a nucleus of whatever it is going on. and was a member of one of the smaller artists, uh, Evelyn Freeman, she had a small orchestra, her brother, Ernie Freeman, Went to Hollywood and did a lot of Hollywood music, Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had another brother, Arthur, who was also a musician. So there, there were a uh, nucleus, let's say, of people that worked as musicians. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think, Gay Cross. Oh, Dave Cross, who had a band. He's the one that did one of uh, John Coltrane's earliest recordings when he came out of the uh, Navy. And that happened to be a tune that Hale lost and the only tune that Hale ever lost out of all the music he wrote, because he learned the trade. But they recorded a tune of Hale's called Bittersweet. Mm -hmm. If you go online now, somebody bought the little 25 cent record of Bittersweet of John Coltrane. It's under John Coltrane's title. And the interesting thing is, when they flashed the picture on, you'll see that the 45, a disc with Hale Smith Jr. on it. That was Hale's tomb, but he never got a nickel for it because, like I said, he lost it. They didn't hmm. protect it, and they had changed the name on it and everything. But anyhow, that's that's the way things work. So Hale be, Hale became a copyright infringement uh, expert. In fact, a lot of the law firms oh, they're in New York, especially the ones associated with Frank Lesser. Got Hale as an expert for for music that it was in contention mm-hmm. for copyright infringement, and that was one of the other things that he did. That was really an interesting aspect of his of his life.
1: Hmm. Oh, and, and very necessary. I'm sure he helped thousands yeah, well, of musicians by uh, championing that cause.
2: unfortunately, what they're doing now, they call it. The rappers call it sampling, they will always call it stealing, but anyhow, they sample <laughs> some of everybody's music and come up with their own, you can't just, they take five or six bars of somebody else's music and do a whole lot to it, and then the next thing you know, it comes out under the title of The World Is Yours. The World Is Yours by Nass, <laughs> it's based on I Love Music, they'll have that right behind it in parentheses.
1: Ah, I mm. see. I see how they're sneaky and get, get away with it.
0: Now, Nicole, I know you've been friends with Juanita for a number of years, and so you all also have some mutual friends. Isn't that right?
1: We have mutual friends because I love music, too. Grew up in a musical household, and I've met Juanita through several friends, Starting with the Center for Black Music Research, Dr. Sam Floyd there, who led me to meet Anne Wiggins Brown. He was the original Bess of Porgy and Bess and um, happened to be a friend of this wonderful woman, Juanita Smith, and her oh. husband, Hale Smith, and, of course, their children. And um, and then Juanita and I ended up going to Norway together to visit Anne. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, though, um, how you met Anne, Anne Brown.
2: Oh, this is interesting. Robin, my daughter, is a graduate from the Cleveland Institute of Art. She's a graphic artist by trade. Oh, no. She had a master's and had a special year actually in the edition. Well, actually that spring, I decided to take her to Paris. Mm-hmm. And uh, our friend, Howard Swanson, who is a composer, who was from Cleveland originally, had lived in Paris for years, even before the war. In fact, he was one of the refugees that walked from Paris to Spain, ahead of the Hitler's army. Mm. And yeah, he was friends with Mamie and Andre Wheatley and he wanted to give us a letter of introduction to them. When I got there, I called up and I talked to Andre. He said, "Oh well, Mamie's visiting her sister and oh, I didn't know who her sister was. He said, well, she'll be back Wednesday because we got there on a Monday. He said, she'll be back Wednesday and I'll have her call you. And so sure enough, Wednesday, she called me. She said, I guess by now, you're tired of being tourists. I'm gonna take you where French people go and not tourists. And so she came and she got us and we went to restaurants and we ended up at Versailles and a whole lot of stuff, you know, and we just became friends. And her husband was a composer also and a a wonderful pianist, Andre is one. She said, when we go to to the United States next time, my sister's gonna come. Anne had not been back to the States since the war. She settled in Oslo, in the 40s mm-hmm. she didn't get back to the states until after the 1960s actually she came it was 74 when she came that's the year i met her mm-hmm. so sure enough mamie came over and and came and they came to the un that was in 1974 that's when i met ann mm-hmm. and so through them i met so many other people my god i met friends of, of of Mamie's and I I met Elizabeth Catlett for one. Mm -hmm. She and her husband Pepe and that's when they were staying in the apartment down near the World Trade Center Mm -hmm. because years ago she couldn't even get the, Elizabeth couldn't even get a visa to come here. She couldn't get a visa even when her mother died.
1: Because she was, this is Elizabeth Catlett, the artist and she spent her time in Mexico
2: well, they they ended up in Mexico, but she was in exile, literally. And they mistreated her to the point where she gave up her American citizenship right. and became a Mexican citizen. Uh, they did, did a bad number on it. And like I said, when she her mother died, they wouldn't even give her a visa to come here to her mother's funeral. Their last name was Mora, M-O-R-A. And mm-hmm. they had a son who was working with Max Roach, the drummer. The, the son was the drummer. And they had two sons. I didn't. I didn't read either one of them, but I knew that uh, she, she had the two sons. And that's the way we met Elizabeth through through Mary. Oh it's,
1: wow, wow! Yeah. That's that's some some fiery women
2: there. And and so much has happened. Yeah. And I I, I miss Anne, and I miss a number of people. All my, all my immediate friends are, are checked out. Yeah. A, I don't know. Like King said, there's an advantage to living longily, really, but I don't know. Sometimes. People live too long, depending.
1: Mm. Oh, I know you miss Hale. You were such a protector of him. What's that saying, Juanita, that Hale would say, it's not who you know? Oh,
2: he always said that. It's not who you know, it's who knows you. And that's so true. <laughs> I mean, people could, I know so-and-so. I don't, yeah, well, okay. Yeah. So Hale always said, Did they know you? <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> <Did> they, right. <laughs>
1: I love that letter of introduction. It's so formal and warm at the same time.
0: <laughs> you know,
2: it, it reminded me, but the same thing happened to Hale. That's a woman who was very famous, uh, you'll find her online, her name was Inez Cavanaugh. She was a companion to Timmy Rosencrantz. He was Danish and he was a jazz fanatic. And years ago, in their apartment he would record bands he'd have Duke's band in there he'd have Count Basie's band and he would record had a wire recorder she used to sing with Duke at some point she was also his secretary and she was a friend of Mary Lou Williams oh but in the meanwhile when Hale first came out got out of the army and decided to come to New York just to visit his uncle he got a letter of introduction to Inez Kavanaugh this is in 1946 hale said he was he had met langston hughes years ago in high school and he had only a piece of manuscript when the teacher said anybody that wants mr hughes autograph is step in line and that's all he had so when he got to langston langston said are you a musician and hale said i hope to be and he signed it i i still have it i've made copies for friends so he met langston hughes in the art when he was before he went to the army in 42 in '46, he was up in New York at the post office up in Harlem, and there was this other gentleman at the other window looking at him. And when he finished, he came over and he said, say, aren't you from Cleveland? And Hale said, yes, I'm, I'm from Cleveland. My name is Smith. He said, are you living here now? He didn't realize that was Langston. Langston never forgot, never forgot anybody. He always remembered he said, are you living here now? Hill he said, no, but I have a letter of introduction to a, a cousin of my aunt's. And he said, what's her name? He said, Inez Kavanaugh. He said, Langston, jump. Inez, she's one of my dearest friends and they're having smoked turkey tonight and you're welcome. And they took a cab and went down to her <laughs> partner. Oh, and hills. So when they got there, there were all these musicians in the living room recording. Oh
1: my. Inez
2: Kavanaugh and Timmy Rosenkrantz were just going over to Europe to set up housekeeping and set up jazz place, And she said when she read the letter, I wish I had known you were coming. I just hired a pianist and that wow. was Billy Taylor. Oh, wow. And so that was the entourage <laughs> that went to Europe and that's how Hale had a letter of introduction to Inez Kavanaugh who turned out to be one of the three black queens of Paris beside Josephine Baker Bricktop and it was Inez Kavanaugh. But that opened up another world, I mean, that was Duke Ellington, Mary Lou Williams, all those people were part of that. And Billy Taylor as well. Well, Lenny, I got a couple of things I want to send you of interest, I think.
1: I can't wait. I always look forward to your (laughs) missives. What a storyteller. Thank you, Anita.
0: Yes, thank you. And what an honor to get some of this history on record.
1: Yes, we have history through first-person accounts at Before You Go on KBLA Talk 1580. Our guests also love fan mail, so drop us a line at BeforeYouGo.tv. That's the website, BeforeYouGo.tv, and we'll share your thoughts with them.
0: Yes, and before we go...
1: We want to remind everyone that stories like these are sometimes just a phone call away.
0: Just pick up that phone and make the call.
1: There's no time like the present. What a gift. a gift.